All right, will you guys stand with me as I read tonight's scripture from Genesis chapter 20 uh, through uh, 21 through 21.8. You can find it in 12 in your pew Bible if you want to follow along. Now Abraham moved on from there into the region of the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. For a while he stayed in Gerar, and there Abraham said of his wife Sarah, She is my sister. Then Abimelech, king of Gerar, sent for Sarah and took her. But God came to Abimelech in a dream one night and said to him, You are as good as dead because of the woman you have taken. She is a married woman. Now Abimelech had not gone near her. So he said, Lord, will you destroy an innocent nation? Did he not say to me, She is my sister? And didn't she also say, He is my brother? I have done this with a clear conscience and clean hands. Then God said to him in a dream, Yes, I know you did this with a clear conscience. And so I have kept you from sinning against me. That is why I did not let you touch her. Now return the man's wife, for he is a prophet, and he will pray for you, and you will live. But if you do not return her, you may be sure that you and all who belong to you will die. Early the next morning, Abimelech summoned all his officials, and when he told them all that had happened, they were very much afraid. Then Abimelech called Abraham in and said, What have you done to us? How have I wronged you that you have brought such great guilt upon me and my kingdom? You have done things to me that should never be done. And Abimelech asked Abraham, What was your reason for doing this? Abraham replied, I said to myself, There is surely no fear of God in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Besides, she really is my sister, the daughter of my father, though not of my mother, and she became my wife. And when God had me wander from my father's household, I told her, I said to her, This is how you can show your love to me. Everywhere we go, say of me, he is my brother. Then Abimelech brought sheep and cattle and male and female slaves and gave them to Abraham. And he returned to Sarah, his wife, and he returned Sarah, his wife, to him. And Abimelech said, My land is before you. Live wherever you like. To Sarah, he said, I am giving your brother a thousand shekels of silver. This is to cover the offense against you before all who are with you. You are completely vindicated. Then Abraham prayed to God, and God healed Abimelech, his wife and his female slaves, so they could have children again. For the Lord had kept all the women in Abimelech's household from conceiving because of Abraham's wife Sarah. Now the Lord was gracious to Sarah, as he had said, And the Lord did for Sarah what he had promised. Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, at the very time God had promised him. Abraham gave him the name, gave the name Isaac to the son Sarah bore him. When his son Isaac was eight days old, Abraham circumcised him as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Sarah said, God has brought me laughter, and everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. And she added, Who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. And now let's pray for the kids as we send them off to Children's Church. Lord, we thank you for your word. And we pray, Lord, um, for our children as they go off to delve into the scripture a little bit more, Lord. Um, Be with Charlie as he shares with the older kids and with Julie with the younger. Um, Lord, continue to teach our children how much you love them um, and bring their hearts closer and closer to you, Lord. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Well, 
In any good adventure story, the hero or the villain tends to have some kind of flaw, either a character flaw or a physical flaw. You know, how fun would Superman be if he couldn't be defeated ever? There's got to be that threat of at least kryptonite to make the story interesting, right? Or if Anakin Skywalker never had anger issues, we'd never have Vader. Now, how cool would that be? Not cool at all. <clears throat> but these things do more than just make characters more interesting. Character flaws or physical flaws in these heroes and villains make us able to relate with them. Spider-Man struggles with his own insecurity. Indiana Jones is afraid of snakes, just like my wife, Corey. <laughs> Mythical uh, character Achilles often acts like an arrogant child and pouts while all his friends get killed in battle. Uh, plus, he has that heel issue, so that doesn't help either. You know, then there's the typical stereotyped uh, detective who's alcoholic and womanizer. Or there's the villain, who, the criminal boss, who also lives by a code of ethics. And so these people are complex. And the point is that we often identify with these flaws because we are flawed. Now, without wading into the debate as to whether art imitates life or light, life imitates art, to which I say yes to both, uh, I don't think it's a coincidence that we identify with flawed characters, either fictional ones or real life. The Bible is full of flawed characters, full of stories of people messing up all the time. The story that Eric just read is a wonderful example. It's part of the story of Abraham, the so-called father of faith. Right? That's, that's how he's known throughout much of the church and in the Bible. And yet, as we see, he's in some ways really easy to identify with. Why? Because he keeps not only making mistakes, but making the same mistake over and over again. Can you identify with that? All right. Now, we've been living in this story of Abraham since September. And by looking at each of those weeks that we've gone over from a bird's eye view, we can kind of see a pattern that's beginning to form in Abraham's life. It all starts when God revealed himself to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12. Abraham, as far as we know from the Bible, was a, a, a pagan guy who lived in this place called Ur, and he worshipped the moon god. And God just appears to him, for no apparent reason, but just appears to Abraham. Abraham and says, listen, guess what I want you to do? I want you to leave all of your roots. I want you to leave your family and go to a land. I'm not going to tell you where. I just a land I'm going to show you. But here's the deal. What I want to do is bless you. And I want to bless every single person that, uh, that blesses you and everyone that curses you, I'm going to curse. And here's the reason for that. I want the world to know how much I love the world. And I want to... To, to show that blessing to the world through you and your family, your descendants. Well, there's a couple problems. Well, I mean, Abraham was a pagan guy. And two, he and his wife couldn't have kids. Sarah was barren. So here's where the pattern begins. Abraham gets this call. And the first thing that he does is act with great faith. He travels over a thousand miles to a land he didn't know before, the land of Canaan act of faith. The pattern then goes from act of faith to lack of faith. It's not long after he gets to Canaan, he travels down south to the land of Egypt, and there he gets scared and tells King Pharaoh, uh, my wife is, she's actually my sister, just to save his own neck. So he acts with lack of faith. And then the third part in this pattern is that God is faithful. 
Even in Abraham's faithlessness, God is faithful and he rescues. Well, then the pattern starts all over again. In the next part of the story, Abraham acts with great faith. His nephew Lot gets captured by these kings. And Abraham and 318 of his own men go and he defeats four kings. And brings his, his, cousin, or his nephew Lot back and his whole family. Great act of faith. And then in the next scene, Abraham acts without faith. He says, well, God said he's going to make me a great nation, but Sarah and I aren't having any kids still, so I know I'll sleep with Sarah's slave girl, Hagar, the Egyptian slave girl, and I'll just make a family. Big step of lack of faith. And then we see the pattern repeating, God is faithful. God blesses Hagar and her child. And he reiterates his promise to Abraham and Sarah, no, I'm going to make a family through you, a great nation. The cycle goes again. God is now um, talking with Abraham, and they're looking down off a mountain at Sodom and Gomorrah. He says, man, that place down there is far from me. The people there have completely turned evil. I'm going to judge that. And Abraham, who's called to be a blessing to the world, says, wait a minute. What if you find 50 righteous people there? You're not really going to wipe that whole place out for 50, if there's 50 righteous people. God says, no, I wouldn't do it if there's 50 there. And, and Abraham says, well, you know, while well, I've got your attention, how about if there's 45 or 40 or 35? How about if there's 10 righteous people in there? Would you still wipe it out? And God says, no, I wouldn't do that. <coughs> so Abraham, again, shows his faith in God. And now we get to tonight's story. And by the time we get to tonight's story that Eric just read, Abraham has had visions from God. He's received direct instructions from God. He's been rescued by God on multiple occasions. He's actually had dinner with God when he was disguised as a man with two angels. He's experienced God hearing and answering his prayers. And maybe most concretely, Abraham has received a, a definitive date from when he and Sarah are supposed to have a child. God said, in a year from now that I'm visiting you, you are going to have a child through Sarah. I mean, it doesn't get much more concrete than that, right? That is a lot of, of reason to trust in God. And that is also a lot of reasons to be astounded at Abraham's lack of faith in this story. This is the second time now that he's told a foreign king that his wife is really his sister, just to save his own neck. The first time is, is a little more understandable, if not any less despicable. Uh, at that time, he has less history with God, and he's going to Egypt. And, and let's, let's face it, I mean, Egypt was a pretty powerful nation at that time, and Pharaoh had a reputation for just killing people when he wanted to. So Abraham was kind of right to be afraid, even though his tactics were bad. But the second time... Abraham has seen God do all these amazing things. Furthermore, he's not traveling to Egypt this time. He's going to this little hodunk place called Gerar. How bad could it be compared to Egypt? And just a few chapters earlier, Abraham and a little band of men defeated four kings. How bad could this one little king be? It's as if... Almost by default, Abraham just offers up Sarah. He doesn't even negotiate about it. There's not anything said about that. We're not even told that this Abimelech king is interested in Sarah. It's like he just gets there and says, Here, this is my sister. Go ahead and have her. Abraham preemptively gives her up. And just a side note, if you've kind of been following the story with us in these weeks, you, 
you understand the fact that Sarah is now probably in her 90s. And it begs the question, why would a king who could have any woman in his land want this 90-ish-year-old woman uh, to be in his harem? Uh, you know, some people say that people age slower back then. Okay, but not that slow. I mean, 90s, 90. <laughs> and there's many theories on this. And one of the more convincing ones is, you know, if God can actually change her reproductive organs into working correctly, well, God could probably also make her body regenerate a little bit. Because, I mean, I don't... Okay, I've never had kids, but I know it's pretty tough. That's... I've seen my wife do it. She's my hero. But, uh, it, 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 you know, if, even if your like, uterus is young again and you can have a baby, I think it would be pretty tough for a 90-year-old to go through that process and, you know, feed the baby. You know what I'm talking about? So anyway, so maybe her body like, gets younger too. But I don't know. Here's, here's what we do know. Here's what we do know. Before I get, dig myself a deeper hole. <laughs> What we do know is that Abraham's wife is so hot, apparently, that he's really afraid for his life. That someone's going to try and take her to be their wife. And number two, she must be so attractive that Abimelech does take her quite willingly into his harem. So that's all I know. But at night, God comes to Abimelech in a dream and tells him, Hey, you've got to give this woman back. She's actually married to that Abraham guy. I can see him rolling his eyes when he says that. And Abimelech goes to Abraham, Why did you do this? Why did you do this? To which Abraham replies, Because I thought to myself, Surely there's no fear of God in this place, and they'll kill me because of my wife. Well, isn't that ironic? Abraham is afraid because he thinks that the people of Gerar don't have any fear of God. Abraham is the one who doesn't have any fear of God. Abraham doesn't place his faith in the living God. In the Hebrew it says quite clearly, I said to myself, surely there's no fear of God in this place. Abraham doesn't seek the counsel of God. He doesn't say, hey, are you going to protect me in this? He doesn't even seem like he tries. He just takes it on his own counsel. And he tries to get through the situation on his own cunning. When we look at the track record of God in Abraham's life, rescuing him from much worse than this, wouldn't it seem that Abraham is acting irrationally? It doesn't make any sense. I recently read a book recommended to me by Patrick McAvoy called Deep Survival. It's a book about why some people live and some people die. Uh, and what's interesting is there's story after story after story of four and five-year-old children who get lost overnight in the woods having a better survival rate than experienced hunters and experienced hikers in the same situation. Lawrence Gonzalez, the author of the book, has done years of research on this phenomenon. And his conclusion is that the reason for it is that adults form mental maps of their world in their head. Let me give you an example. Mental, well, mental maps help us to get through life more efficiently. So have you ever traveled to a city that you weren't familiar with and rented a car? 
Okay, so let's take San Francisco. Uh, I remember when we first moved down there and uh, got in some good fights going to San Francisco uh, because it's so frustrating with all the different one-ways and the hills. Uh, apparently the street system in San Francisco was designed on, in, in the East Coast uh, by designers and they didn't take into consideration the hills. So it's a grid. If you ever go there, it's just a grid and there's all these hills. It's really hard to get around. And so if you're ever in a city you're not used to and you're trying to find, you could even have the address, you could even have GPS, and still you're hypersensitive to what street sign was that, what landmark was that, because it's all completely new. But think about how you got to church this evening if you've been here before. I bet you didn't even think about how you got here, or how you get to work, or how you get to school. It's just kind of second nature, because you have a mental map of this place that you know, right? So, you're an experienced hiker, and you go on a familiar hike, okay? Maybe you're up at Mount Baker. You're going on a familiar hike. You have a mental map of the terrain. You've been there before. You're just kind of walking, and it's all the same. It's all the same. Well, all of a sudden, the terrain starts looking unfamiliar. You kind of lost the trail. Stage one, denial sets in. You keep going, but a bit faster now. Have you ever experienced that, when you kind of feel lost and you start walking faster, get a little more desperate? I think if I just get over that ridge, it'll start looking familiar again. In the next stage, you start to impose your mental map on the terrain. You impose the map of the terrain that you know on top of the terrain that you're in. The two don't match up at all. You're in a place. You're lost, but you're still functioning as if you're in a place that you know. The next stage is you realize, oh man, I'm lost. And then your heart starts pumping and adrenaline starts going. And you might even find yourself running. If I just get over there or through that valley or past that tree, I know I'll start to recognize something. Until all of a sudden your adrenaline's used up and your energy's used up. And you come to the place where you have two options. You just keep wandering around and using all your energy. Or you adjust your mental map and make corrections. Now... Children do not have that problem. They don't have mental maps. Their minds aren't as developed as an adult or even as an adolescent. So a four-year-old girl gets lost off the same trail. She starts to get tired and cold. So the four-year-old girl takes her coat and finds a nook in a tree and sits down and takes a nap. The four-year-old girl is woken by the soft, wet nose of a rescue dog. She's just a few dozen yards off the trail. She lives... But the adult doesn't if they can't adjust. And there's something to be said sometimes for just the simplicity of faith. <clears throat> we're so used to controlling our surroundings that when we're faced with a change in plans, when we're faced with a change in life circumstances or a threat, we can throw all reason out the window and act irrationally. And that seems to be happening with Abraham. He's got this great track record uh, with God. I bet he was sitting at church, if they even had, you know, they didn't have that. But if he was just sitting there on a rock and somebody asked him, tell me about your history with God, he would tell, he would wax nostalgic about all the great things God's done for him. But now he's in this new situation that he can't control, and he's afraid and acts irrationally. And there's two things that happen to us when we're afraid. First, when we're controlled by fear, we're not really trusting God anymore. And that's clearly what Abraham's deal is. Second, fear can make us demonize other people, can make us villainize 
whole groups of other people. It causes an us-versus-them mentality. In many ancient Near Eastern cultures, adultery was one of the worst crimes imaginable and often carried the death penalty. Abraham just assumes that because Abimelech is king of Gerar, which is a pagan nation, that he will not be a moral man and that the people of Gerar will not be moral people. Abraham assumes that he will be in danger because surely only he and his clan know God. And surely if he, only he and his clan know God, only they can be the right ones. Only they can be the good ones. And what we find is that Abraham has horribly misjudged Abimelech. He's horribly misjudged the people of Gerar. As soon as God appears to Abimelech in a dream, he gets up and the narrator is sure to point out, early the next morning, he gathers all of his servants and leaders together and he tells them what God said and what happens. They are afraid. The people of this little pagan nation that Abraham assumed wouldn't fear God are actually quite astute and quite aware and fearful of getting crosswise of God. <coughs> just that little dialogue between Abimelech and God where he says, I didn't even know she was married. Just, just that tells us that he is more righteous than Abraham in this situation. Abimelech says to Abraham, what have you done to us? Not what have you done to me? He's thinking about his whole nation. This Abimelech is a good king. He cares about his people, not just his own neck, like Abraham. He calls Abraham's actions sins to his face. He says, literally, what have you seen that you would do this thing? What is it that you've seen about our people that you would do this to me, Abraham? That you would bring this kind of, of wrath upon me? And all Abraham does is backpedal. Uh, I just assumed you were going to be evil. And, and plus, is this something that Sarah and I kind of invented when we go to foreign places? Which, if, if you start to look back at it, I mean, it doesn't come out good for Abraham. Because either he's telling the truth, which doesn't bode well for him. But it, I think he's telling a lie here. Because in all the other stories of Abraham going to foreign places, he doesn't do this. He doesn't do it when he, he meets uh, uh, Melchizedek or the king of, uh, uh, of Sodom after defeating the four kings. So I think he's lying here. <coughs> I mean, is, this is like husband of the year stuff, right? Like, I, I just told my wife to be my sister whenever I'm in trouble. So, finally, Abimelech restores Sarah's honor by giving an extravagant gift. The typical kind of bride price back then was 50 shekels of silver. Actually, that wasn't even typical. That was uh, on the high end of the scale. Abimelech gives a thousand shekels of silver, which for an average day laborer would take more than a lifetime to earn, 167 years. And he does that, and it, it's interesting, he gives it to Sarah. See, in that day, men and women, um, you weren't supposed to talk directly to someone else's wife. He talks directly to Sarah and says, here, this is for your brother. It's kind of like you're supposed to laugh. That's funny. <clears throat> he was kind of this extra poke at Abraham. But in doing so, in giving such an extravagant gift, Abimelech is actually restoring Sarah's honor. Basically, from now on, other people should look at you with honor and and not has been taken by another king. Now, fast forward, if you will, to the days of Moses wandering in the desert when Israel was 
just out of Egypt. Or, or go even further into the future, into the Babylonian exile. At that time, uh, Israel had turned their backs on God, were worshiping idols, and so God allowed Babylon to come and take them into exile. And there they were without a land of their own. And what happens to, to people, to all kinds of people, but what was happening to Israel at that time is they began to hate, of course, Babylon, because Babylon did some very cruel things to them. And they begin to have dreams about when God makes this right, he's going to exalt us and crush all those bad guys. It's an us versus them mentality. See, this story is in the Bible and it would remind those people, they could read this while they're in exile, it would, would remind those readers that God chose Israel to bless other people, not to bring judgment on other people. In fact, throughout Scripture, God has a history of talking through other people who we wouldn't expect to know God, right? God spoke to Abimelech in a dream. He spoke to Pharaoh in a dream, and even to the Babylonian king Darius in a dream. And when God comes to earth as the infant Jesus, it's pagan astronomers called the Magi, or the, the three kings or three wise men, depending on what version of the story you've heard. But those guys come, and Matthew's Gospel tells us that they bowed down and worshipped Jesus. The great stories have flawed heroes because we can identify with them. And we can identify with Abraham. I can identify with his lack of faith from time to time. I can identify with how we too easily can demonize other people who aren't like us. You know, sometimes this plays out on the national scene. It's easier to uh, stereotype complete groups of people into, oh, those people over there are poor and ignorant. Or those people over there, that's where the terrorists come from. They're all terrorists. We feel superior and self-righteous when we can do that about other people. We feel better about ourselves in the midst of our own chaos. I remember in 2004, Corey and I went to the Olympics in Athens to do some service work. And we were volunteering in one of the outside squares there. And uh, all of a sudden, remember this is after, not far after the invasion of Iraq. And so this group of about 14 Young men with really dark hair and really dark skin start coming over to us and they start talking to us. And I immediately just thought in my, in my chest, they're not going to like me. Because I'm from not only the United States, but I'm living in California where Schwarzenegger's the governor now. <clears throat> At the time. And what happened was amazing. We just started having a conversation. And they were university students in Athens. And we had all this stuff in common and they actually kind of all they wanted to talk about was Arnold Schwarzenegger, and they liked that for some reason. But, <laughs> but what was fascinating is when you just have a conversation with people, it breaks down all kinds of barriers. Sometimes the us versus them plays out in the false dichotomy between church and culture. And not just Christians and culture, but any religious group and culture. And there can be an us versus them mentality. As if... Only Christian artists were the ones with the right perspective on the world. I certainly hope that's not true. God can speak, can speak, through anyone. And sometimes, very non-Christian filmmakers and songwriters and painters and poets, sometimes those are the people that have the best and most profound insights onto God's creation and our humanity. 
The church and other religious groups often takes antagonistic stances toward other faiths, which is really close to what Abraham's doing in this journey. Yes, as Christians, we believe that Jesus is God incarnate. Yes, we believe that the scriptures are God's authoritative revelation to us about him and his story. Yes, we believe Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. But that doesn't mean that God cannot speak through other people. He does it all the time in the Bible. There are many stories in recent history of Jesus coming to Muslims and, and Jesus coming to Hindus and isolated tribes of faraway islands in dreams and visions. And you know what? We should hope this is the case. Right? If we really love this Jesus and want to tell other people about him, we should hope that, hey, do some of the work yourself. You're God. That is awesome. And what you find in these stories in the Bible when God goes to Abimelech, or he goes to Pharaoh, or he goes to King Darius, or, these, or even the Magi, what happens? The Magi come to Jerusalem and they get, they have a general revelation, they have a dream or something. They come and they have to talk to the Jews. They come to the religious teachers to put more clarity onto their vision. Abimelech has this vision, but for some weird reason, it's still Abraham, the sinful guy in the story, who has to pray over Abimelech to make sense of this whole thing. When Pharaoh has a dream to warn him about his kingdom, there's going to be this, this famine in the land. Who is it that interprets that dream? It's Joseph, the Israelite. And when Darius, king of, uh, of Babylon, has a dream, a revelation from God, God works it out so that Daniel, the Israelite, has to interpret it. And so there's this relationship between the people of God and people who don't yet know God. And God can speak and we can give voice to that. I think that's awesome. I love the fact that there are no boundaries on what God can do. Finally, and most unfortunately, the church is often seen at odds with itself. One denomination bad-mouthing another. One congregation feeling superior to another. You know what? There, there's no room for that in God's plan. There's no room for that in God's plan. On Wednesday, a group of over 40 local, local pastors converged on uh, the first conference center thanks to Jim Donath. He cooked a great meal. <coughs> Forty of us together in a room, all different denominations, different ages, different perspectives. Probably had a lot of theological disagreements. But we ate together. And we prayed for each other. And we prayed for each other's congregations. That's exciting to me to see God doing something awesome here in Whatcom County. And building people more together, not breaking them apart. So, yeah, you guys know I'm a nerd and was really into the TV show Lost when it was around. In fact, we might start it again just to kind of glean more. But that, that show Lost really played on this division of us and them. You've got the plane crashing on this deserted island. And it's the survivors from that plane and then these people who lived on the island before called, of course, the Others. So you've got this us versus them. And at first, when you first start watching the show, you think, man, these others are just like total bad guys. Like they're evil and the survivors are good. But then you start to notice, wait a minute, I'm getting more of the backstory on these survivors. And they're just as morally corrupt 
torturing one another, sleeping. I mean, they're just as morally corrupt as the others. N.T. Wright writes this. It's fatally easy, I mean fatally easy, to typecast people like us as basically good and people like them as basically evil. It's fatally easy to typecast people like us as basically good, the few flaws, and people like them as basically evil. Maybe they have a few good moments. But the story of Abraham, no, it's in our face, reminding us, reminding us that we are a lot like him. We are the ones who lack faith so often. We're the ones who are often afraid that God wouldn't have our best in mind. We often fear what others will think about us or do to us more than we care about what God thinks about us or wants to do through us. And like Abraham, we often assume the worst of those who are different than us. And so, I've got some really good news. This story is not about Abraham. This story is not about Sarah. It's not even about the good king Abimelech. This is a story about God and his faithfulness. God made a promise to Abraham. And this story is about him keeping that promise almost despite Abraham. God's grace is audacious. It doesn't make any sense. It drives me nuts that Abraham does this and then comes out of the situation wealthy. Doesn't that bother you? Doesn't it bother you that Abimelech is this good guy, this good king, and then he has to go through Abraham to get healed? Like, what's going on? Why does Abraham retain the privilege of being the one who prays to restore Abimelech? Because God is faithful to those who we may make a promise, even when they're not faithful. He's faithful when you and I are not. And that, the story, uh, it was really bothering me. It should rub you the wrong way. It's not fair. But then again, I look at my own life and I say, I am so glad that God is not fair. Right? Aren't you glad God is not fair sometimes? Uh, I, I think what we're seeing in the story is that God is better than fair. He's better than fair. He, he, he's gracious. And that's why I chose not to end at the end of chapter 20, but to go into 21. Because there we see God delivering on his promise. Sarah has this child. She names him Isaac, which means laughter. Sarah laughs with God because God is faithful. And you know what? God is still faithful. God is still trustworthy. God continues to invite us to trust him for forgiveness of sin and eternal life through Jesus. And Jesus invites us to be blessings to the world. He gives us a meaningful vocation. Like something to wake up for besides putting food on the table and going to work. I mean, it's awesome. <coughs> and one of the hardest things for us to do is not to admit that we need forgiveness. I, I, at least it's not hard for me. Like, I, I know I need. 
I'm really identifying with Abraham here. I make some of the same mistakes over and over again. I, I think the hard thing for us to accept is God's forgiveness and blessing. If we can't accept that, it's really hard to be a blessing to anyone else. So as we enter into this time of prayers for healing, I want to just open it up. Like, what is standing in your way? I'm asking myself the same question. What's standing in my way for more fully embracing this forgiveness, this trust, that God is this crazy, audaciously faithful and generous to us? And, you know, as we go into this... This time, I mean, you can pray, pray where you're at. Um, yeah, I mean, maybe, the, maybe there's an area of your life where you're sensing breakthrough. You want God, to, you want to turn more of yourself over to Him. That would be a great time to do it. Up here or where you're at. Um, yeah. I'm going to invite uh, Ann to come up and help me with prayers for healing and...